morning, Calvary. I have missed you the last few weeks as I've been out in Thornton and then in Boulder in this series. We're traveling around a little bit to share some of the unsung heroes that we're preaching in our location. And it is great to report back to you that Boulder loves you and thinks about you often. That, if you don't know, Boulder was kind of the campus that launched us. 200 members from the Boulder campus came out several years ago and, and started this campus. And Thornton is doing well. We're out in Thornton, and if you remember, we had over 100 people from this campus go and launch the Thornton campus. And I just want to tell you, it is a wonderful thing to know that we belong to a congregation that thinks about each other, loves one another, supports one another, prays for one another, helps launch churches that are completely independent here locally and globally because we all serve the living God. And so Boulder affectionately is thinking about you, Thornton is doing well, and it's just great to know that as we are worshiping here, not only are those campuses worshiping, but other churches in our community, in our country, and around the world are gathered to worship the living God. And we're going to continue in our series, this Unsung Hero series, where we're looking at less familiar people in the Bible that, that exhibit a character of faith that we can imitate and reveal a character trait about God that we can trust. Some of these unsung heroes go unnoticed because they're somehow outshined by other people in the Bible. And maybe they're outshined because those people have more dramatic stories. And dramatic stories really capture our attention. Here's a question for you. Outside of Jesus, his mother Mary, maybe Peter, who's the most famous person that you think of in the New Testament? Paul. Paul, right? He was Saul. And there's this dramatic conversion story where this Saul is persecuting the church, murdering Christians, and then he has an encounter with the living God. And his life is so transformed that he becomes the biggest advocate, believer in Jesus, going and planting all of these churches around the Roman Empire. He's a sung hero in the church. A less familiar hero would be someone like Timothy. Timothy was a mentee of Paul, and very few of us know much about Timothy, perhaps because he has less of a dramatic conversion story. Less of his writings are known. But Timothy is very, very important. Paul met Timothy on one of his missionary journeys. So if you have your Bible with you, fire it up over to Acts chapter 16. Here Paul is traveling to a town called Derby in Lystra. And he runs into this young man named Timothy. And I should really use an iPad. It'd be so much faster. Just kidding. Never. <laughs> Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this famous Paul shows up in this small town. And he's captivated by the faith of this young disciple. 
He says, I want this disciple here, this young man, to become my protege, to travel with me, to accompany me. There's something that is so attractional about Timothy for Paul that he brings him. And, and he circumcised him because his father was a Greek, and a faithless man. It means he didn't believe in God. He wasn't a Jewish father. And so Timothy is then circumcised because of the Jews they're going to go serve amongst. Now, Paul doesn't do this for all the Greek converts. He doesn't do this for Titus. But he does this for Timothy because there was a big argument happening of how Jewish do you have to be first to then believe in Jesus. And to keep this, as a stump, keep this from being a stumbling block, Paul just takes care of it himself. And so Timothy, who was a disciple, becomes a protege and follows Paul on all these sorts of missionary journeys. And then as he grows in his leadership ability, Paul then sends his protege as a missionary, an emissary to other churches with the letters that he writes. So here's an example from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and you know who takes it? It's Timothy. And so Timothy has to be the one that brings this letter of correction, that challenges them, that confronts them. Perhaps he's the one that reads it to them. And so we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, I urge you, then be imitators of me. Like, follow in the example of faith that I've laid out for you. This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Disciple, protege, beloved child in the Lord. I'm sending him to you to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Timothy has to be the one that not just drops off the message, but has to deal with the fallout. Has to be there to explain, what did Paul mean by this? You ever hear the phrase, don't kill the messenger? Do you know why they say that? It's because people want to kill the messenger. So when Timothy shows up and there's harsh words from Paul, who do they want to take it out on? Timothy. But he's grown up in his faith so much so that he can actually teach as Paul taught. Instruct as Paul instructed. Clarify maybe some of the questions that they're asking. He not only does this in Corinth, we'll see in Philippi and other places. Paul then sends him, not just as a missionary or a messenger, but he's going to send them actually to be a pastor. In one of the most influential cities in the entire Roman Empire is Ephesus. And there is so much discord happening in that church. There are so many false teachers that have come in. Paul sends like his number one candidate, his first string. To go to Ephesus and be its pastor. Church history has it that Timothy later died there in old age, late 80s, maybe in his 90s. Still pastoring Ephesus. And so we look at this letter that Paul had written to Timothy. He wrote a couple letters directly to Timothy. This is his last correspondence. And this is what Paul says to the one who was a disciple, who became a protege, who is an emissary, and is now a leader of leaders. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Like, like Timothy has become so dear to Paul. Not only does he call him his true son, his beloved child, a 
I'm always thinking about you, Timothy. I'm always praying for you, Timothy. As I remember your tears, probably when they separated, or maybe the final goodbye, the last time they saw each other. I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy, when I get around you, it just brings joy to my heart. There's something about your faith that just awakens and encourages faith in my heart. I love you, Timothy. Here's my question. Where did Timothy's faith come from? Like, we know Paul, he was educated in the finest schools by the top scholars of the day. Where was Timothy trained? Where did he get his faith that when Paul saw it said, wow, that kind of faith needs to come with me. And that kind of faith needs to grow up and be sent out to the church. That kind of faith needs to lead a church. Where did Timothy's faith come from? Let's look at verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Who's the unsung hero that I want you to know about? It's actually not Timothy. It's Grandma Lois. Grandma Lois is the one who had this genuine, authentic, captivating faith that dwelt in her, that was in her daughter, and then her son. Now we're not sure actually if, if Lois is Timothy's maternal or paternal grandmother. Historians was, would, would argue that it, it's of course his mother's mom. This is the lineage of faith. And if that's so, then just think about Lois's mind when Eunice is married to an unbelieving pagan Roman Greek father of her grandson. And what kind of faith is going to go to her grandchildren? My daughter is married to this Greek. He doesn't even follow the ways of Yahweh. He doesn't even have Timothy circumcised like all the other males in the family of faith on the eighth day. There's wrestling that's happening maybe in Lois's heart. But there's something that we learn from Grandma Lois. That God uses ordinary means to grow generational faith. You don't have to be a Paul to instill genuine generational faith. You can have real faith like Grandma Lois. I'm interested in this word dwells. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. This word dwells is the same word that Paul uses just a few verses later to speak of the Holy Spirit's residence in a believer. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, which means that it, it takes up residence in all of your faculties, in all the areas of your life, and has persuasion. It influences, it directs, it informs how you live. So Paul says, I'm captivated by the faith that lived, dwelt, took up residence, persuaded, informed your grandmother. That lived in your mother. That now I see dwells, lives in you. Now what did Lois do to teach Timothy this kind of faith? Well the next chapter, chapter 3, points out what I think 
his mother and his grandmother had done in getting Timothy into the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul later says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom, and that's, that's plural in the Greek, from whom, not me, Paul, but from whom, your mother and your grandmother, Lois, from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You're acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, the words of God. Your grandmother and mother were faithful to teach you the words of God from your early childhood memories. Now, what is Lois's disciple-making method? I don't actually know this. But I'm really interested in making disciples. Make disciples is on the wall. Like we paint things on the wall that we care about. Make disciples. Like this church wants to make disciples. What are disciples? Apprentices. Followers of Jesus. So what was Lois's disciple-making method? How did she acquaint her daughter and then Timothy with the sacred writings? Well, I could be almost certain that she did it with the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that Jewish families would pray multiple times a day. They are informing not only their moment-by-moment lives, but informing the family of the ways of God. And so Deuteronomy 6 is when Israel has left Egypt, come to the wilderness, and now they're going to this land of promise. God gives them instructions of how to grow generational faith. I think this is what Lois did with Timothy. Now, you might be in the room and say, I don't have kids. Like, what, mess, what kind of message is this for me? I think it's for all of us. This is how the community grows generational faith. I think first and foremost in the family. But then we participate in the family of God. You're part of the family of God. Even if you never have a kid, you're in the family of God. And, and I've been around generational grandmothers and fathers that never had kids that have formed faith in me. That have instilled their faith in me. And so whether you have kids or not, we need you to be like Grandma Lois is. But if you are a grandma and you are a mom or you're a dad or grandpa, the call for us in our homes is very, very important. For we are the primary disciple makers of our kids. You get that? It's not a program. It's not Calvary Kids. I love Calvary Kids, but that's not the primary mechanism of discipling your kids. It's not student ministries. We have an awesome student ministries. That's not the primary disciple-making model for your kids. It's not the school. It's not even a Christian school. It's mom and dad, grandma and grandpa in the home with intentionality. I'm going to show you where I get this from the Shema. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll start in verse 4. The beginning of their prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like Israel, remember... There are no other gods. The Lord your God is the only one. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The heart is the operational system of your life. So what does he first tell us? Is that we are to love the Lord with your whole life. That if we're going to model faith for generations, we are called to love the Lord with our whole life. With our mind, our strength, our soul, 
to have it on our heart, the operation of our heart. You see, our faith, if we want it to go to our kids, can't just be on the shelf. It can't just be Sunday. It has to be lived out in every sphere of life. So faith is lived out on Monday morning. It's lived out on Wednesday afternoon. Friday night. We love the Lord with our whole self, all of our faculties. This is what I think Paul means by it dwelt in your mother, in your grandmother Lois. It took up real residence in her whole life. You saw every area of her life, how she mothered, how she grandmothered, how she spent money, how she worked in the marketplace, how she lived as a model of faith. It dwelt in her, her whole life. Second thing is, it was hers. It was really hers. You have to have a genuine faith. If we're concerned about how our children, grandchildren, the children of the world, come to know and have real genuine faith, and we say, where do we start? We start right here. We cannot pass on what we do not first possess. And so we must possess a real genuine faith if we have any hope of passing on a real genuine faith. Now, it doesn't say perfect faith. You don't have to have a perfect faith. None of us in this room are perfect. There are no perfect parents. The Shema is not the nine principles of having perfect children. This is not a formula. You do this and it's guaranteed to get this kind of kid. Nope. But this is the formational creed of the family of God. That we first and foremost as individuals love God with a genuine faith in all of our faculties, in all of the arenas of our life. The second one. He continues in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When do we do our faith? All the time. Like the principle here is that you make natural things spiritual and spiritual things natural. There's not, you don't just carve out a time of like, well, this is the, the spiritual time, and then later on we're going to go to soccer practice. This is the spiritual time, and then you'll go off to school. This is the spiritual time, and then we'll do these activities. No, you talk about the Lord all the time. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed in the evening, when you're picking up from soccer practice, when you're going to graduation, when you're going to their music concert, you talk about the ways of the Lord all the time. You make natural things spiritual and spiritual things very natural. We've been camping this last week up in Uray for the 4th of July. It was fantastic. Thanks for asking. And one of our practices when we are camping is to ask questions in the morning. Right now we're doing the New City Catechism with our kids. Like here's just a question about who God is, about who we are, our purposes. Here's a question and an answer. And that informs the conversation for the day of who we are, who God is. Where do we see that happening in the world? This is a, a pretty regular practice even when they go to school during the school years. We'll take a passage of scripture. Maybe it's like the, the fruits of the spirit. We'll say, okay, love, joy, peace, patience. We'll take one per day and say, okay, today we're talking about joy. God gives us joy. Joy, what is joy? Where do we get joy? When do we experience joy? In the mornings. In the afternoon, like, how did, how did joy show up in your life at school today? How about today we talked about self-control? Boys, how did self-control go today? 
Where did you lack self-control? Where did you see other people have self-control? Where did you see other people lack self-control? How do we know about God who has self-control? And we talk about it all the time. Pick up from soccer practice. Where did you see kindness? Where did you see patience? Where did you see the love of God show up in your life? And we just make natural conversations spiritual all day long. And we make spiritual things natural all day long. They were called here to bind them as a sign on your hand. And there will be frontlets between your eyes. These are these phylacteries where they would actually put them in these leather cases, these squares, like parts of the Shema, maybe the first paragraph, portions of Exodus, and they would actually bind them to their foreheads. It's a visible sign of faith that this is on the forefront of my mind. When I'm praying, this of the Lord is what I'm thinking about foremost. And they would bind them on their left arm to be near their heart, wrapping this leather strap around their arm seven times, all the way down to their fingers, to point out that the God... God's word informs their mind, is in their heart, and all the way to their hands, extends out to how they live. There's another part where it says to put this on their doors, step, or their doorposts. This is the mezuzahs. I don't know if you guys know Ad and Sarah right over here. Love these guys. Here's a great example of how you make natural things spiritual and spiritual things natural. Several years ago, they moved into their new home. They said, hey, Thomas, we're moving into a new house. Would you come and bless the house with us? I said, I would love to do that. As they bought their new home, got to go over there with their family, some other friends from their life group. And there we blessed a house. A very natural thing, moving into a new house. Becomes a spiritual thing. Father God, would your spirit rest here? Would you have peace here? Would this be a place of respite and healing for people? Now, if you know Ad, you know that he grew up in a Jewish household. He is a Jew that believes in Jesus as the Messiah. Messianic Jew. And so he took these mezuzahs. And he nailed them to the doorposts of his home as a visible sign of faith for the family. Natural things spiritual, spiritual things natural. When do we talk about our faith? All the time. All the time. So, moving on. Verse 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. This is speaking of the wilderness time. When they're rebelling against God. Don't do that when you're in the land, he says. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. I think the principle here is that we live our faith in action. That you live out your faith visibly, actively, so your kids and others can see it. It's not just something to be intellectually passed on but visibly seen so that it's caught by the next generation. I think our kids and our grandkids, the young families around here need to see men and women who live out their faith in action. It doesn't work for us to tell our kids, thou shall not lie. And then the doorbell goes off and you say, hey, tell the solar guy I'm not home. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. That's what, that's what I think the Lord is saying here. Is when you come into the land, live out the commands. Do the things the family does. Seek forgiveness. Be generous. Worship with the community when the community worships. Stop skipping the worship services. 
so that your children and your grandchildren can see faith lived out. Like real life, real faith working together. I think that's what he's calling us to do when he says that we are to live out the statutes and the commands. Now, some of these statutes and commands are different than the culture. Some would say they're weird, they're bizarre, and kids are going to ask questions. Perfect. He moves on to this next principle. Verse 20. When your sons, when your children asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies of the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might give us in, sorry, bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Kids are going to ask questions. Mom, Dad, why are you weird? Why do you do weird stuff? Like my, my friends, they don't do these things. They don't pray before their meals. They don't go to church on Sunday. They don't get tithe. They don't go on mission trips. They're not talking about Jesus all the way. Why do you do all these things? I'm so glad you asked. Don't just say because we're Christian. I give the reason why. What God's giving his people is when your kids ask you, because kids are going to ask. Why do we believe this? Why do we live this way? You tell them the story of God. That you share your faith with stories. And start with the story of God. you got, you, you, you got to remember, we didn't always live in the promised land. We didn't always get to choose what we were having for breakfast. We didn't get to choose when we were going to have vacation. We didn't get to go up to the church and worship together. No, see, there was a time when we were all slaves. I was a child, I was enslaved in Egypt. And we were told when to wake up, how to work, when to go to bed. And they didn't pay us anything. But then there's this God who's rich in mercy. He's your God, he's my God. He's so rich in mercy that he saw us in our estate. He heard our cries. He was moved with compassion. And he sent a redeemer, Moses. And there were these great signs. Oh man, I got to tell you about these signs God did in our life. He set us free. And we are free. And so the reason we do these statutes, the reason we obey his commands is because, as he says right here, it is for our good always. This is not to restrict goodness, restrict life. No, it's for our goodness. And it's so that we would always preserve alive. See that? We would preserve alive. What does that mean? That we would never be enslaved again. That we would never be enslaved by our appetites. We'd never be enslaved by other little gods. We'd never be enslaved by our habits. We'd never be enslaved by our decisions. No, we live this way for our good so that we would always be free. We'd experience the freedom of God always. That's why we do what we do. Now that was the gospel story until it was fulfilled. And now when our children ask, why do we believe this? We tell them of a greater exodus, don't we? 
that we were stuck not in slavery in Egypt, but in slavery to sin and death. And God, who's rich in his mercy, saw us in our estate and said, I am moved with compassion to rescue them from their sin and death. And so he sent his only son, his only son, Jesus, to come and die on the cross, to die a death that we deserve and to live this human life that none of us could possibly live, to show us what it means to be truly, fully human, free and alive, following perfectly the commands and statutes of the Father. And because he has set me free from sin and death, we do these statutes that we would always be alive, free, never be enslaved to another. We do them for our good. Now, this generation got to share with their offspring their personal story. Now, later on, that just became the story of God for his people. But I would encourage you to share with your children or other children your story of how the gospel was personalized for you. Have you ever shared that with your kids? Like, mom, dad, you go to church every weekend. Why? You know, back in the 70s, it was wild. <laughs> in the 80s, the 90s, I, I just got so caught up in. But then Jesus showed up. I heard this preacher. I, I read this track. I, I ran into this coworker. I had this neighbor. And man, I had an encounter with the living God. And he changed me. He saved me and freed me from this prison cell that I was in of self. And I have been set free. And I have learned that when I practice the ways of God, I stay free. Never to be enslaved again. And this is my story of how the Lord met me and why we do the things in the family of faith. Share your stories. Share your stories. That's what we need to hear. How did the Lord transform your life? So here are the four things again. That I think Grandma Lois has in her mind as she prays the Shema every single day. That first and foremost, I need to love the Lord with my whole being. That genuine faith, not perfect faith, but genuine faith lived in Grandma Lois in all of her faculties and all of her life. That she made natural things spiritual and spiritual things natural. When she was around Timothy and they were just making dinner, she talked about things of the Lord. When she watched Timothy play and, and went out to the marketplace, she talked about the things of the Lord. Then she put her faith in action. She lived it actively so that Timothy could see it. So he could believe it. That it's actually working out for someone. And then she shared the stories. She said, oh, let me tell you the mighty works of God. Not only in history, but in my life as well. You see, I think the character trait of Lois is that she has genuine faith that God used to create generational faith to Timothy and beyond. You don't have to be a Paul. You could be a Grandma Lois. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's why we get so passionate about kids here at Calvary. From kids and students in middle school and high school. Is the reason we have Calvary kids is not so that you can have childcare and come in here and listen to Thomas. As great as that is. That's discipleship happening. Those are the youngest members in the family of faith 
that we want to come alongside parents and families and help instill faith, new faith, growing young faith. This is why we do things like Kids Week. It's not just summer camp. You know, mom and dad got to work, got to find somewhere to put the kids. No, this is an intentional week for families within our church and families from the community to have their kids here to hear the stories of God. That new faith would be awakened. That young faith would grow. And that some of these young girls and some of these young boys would grow up to be like Lois and Timothy, being influential in their communities, courageously sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This week is going to be a great week. The, thing is, the reason we go to Maranatha isn't just for fun and games. It's to remove kids from their environment of being on their technologies, to be texting and enveloped in the worries of their community, but to focus on the things of the Lord and to remind them of the things of faith. The high school trip is going to move down in Arkansas. The reason we go there isn't just because it's a fun conference. It's to help instruct young men and women in the things of faith. And so I just want to pause before we move on, and, or sorry, before we close out in our, in our service with singing, just to pray for those events that are happening as a church. It's like grandma and grandpa prayers now for kids. Because it really matters what happens this week in Kids Week. People's lives could be changed forever, forever. And so would you pray in the quietness of your heart right now for all the, the volunteers that are going to be coming in? A couple hundred of us. Would you pray for their health, that they would be healthy the whole week? They'll be present this whole week. Pray for their energy. Pray for their enthusiasm. Pray for intentional opportunities divine moments to help connect dots to make natural things spiritual and spiritual things natural. And then would you pray for the kids that are coming? These young kids, some from households of faith and some from households that have never told them about the living God, the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray for, for their ears and their eyes to, to hear things and see things in the songs that are sung, in the games that are played, in the stories that are shared, in the community experience that they have, and that God would awaken their hearts more and more to faith. Pray for our middle school students that got back from Maranatha. There were seeds that were planted. The word of God goes out. It's not void. But seeds were scattered. And we just pray they land on good soil and that the hardships of their own life wouldn't, wouldn't snuff it out. And the worries and the, the luxuries of life wouldn't choke it out. Would you pray that those seeds that they had in Maranatha would germinate on good soil? Be watered, 
nourished here, it would take root and grow up. Pray for our high school students that are going down to move. Pray that they would continue to develop in their faith a, a courage and a certainty, a confidence in their Lord. To face the hardships of high school and college and beyond. A real resolve, an ownership of their faith that moves from being connected to Jesus through their mom and dad to being directly connected to Jesus because of their personal decisions. I give you thanks for a community like Calvary Bible Church that is a generational community. From those who are newly born to the seniors amongst us. Father, I thank you for young families. I thank you for old families. I thank you even for the, the ways in which you have bound us together. I thank you for the singles in our community, young and old, and the incredible roles that they play with us. And so, Father, may we be a generational community of faith that loves you, Lord, in our whole being, that makes our faith natural in our life, that lives it so that others can see it, and that shares it with the incredible stories of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.